0: That's heritageradionetwork.org networkorg 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's. Home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at Roberta'sPizza.com.
3: Has he told you this story about how we met? The thing about our friendship and
4: our relationship is like we really know each other.
5: We met at a now defunct culinary co-working space
3: slash incubator. RIP, uh, it's called
1: Pilotworks. You just heard baker and entrepreneur Lonnie Holiday talking about how she met chef and restaurateur Eric C., the owner of Ursula in Brooklyn. Despite the closure of Pilotworks, Lonnie and Eric continue to work together, which you can hear all about on The Build, a special season of HRN's opening soon, which follows the construction of their new restaurant from start to finish. In today's episode, we'll hear more about Pilotworks and the impact that its shuttering had on others in the industry. Last week, we focused on how money influences our personal and daily experiences with food service, both as workers and diners. This week, we continue to talk about money, but zoom way out, examining how the global economy impacts how we eat and produce food. We'll hear about the possibilities and challenges associated with venture capital in the food space and how banking and agriculture intersect. I'm Matt Patterson, and this is Meat and Three on HRN. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat
3: and
6: Three.
5: One meat, three sides.
6: Food, news, and storytelling.
3: A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three.
1: For our first story, Charlotte Rhodes further examines the legacy of Pilotworks, charting the rise and fall of the culinary co-working space and tracking its lasting impact.
7: Pilotworks opened its doors in 2016 as an incubator and kitchen facility for emerging food and beverage businesses. In its prime, Pilotworks had incubators across the country in Brooklyn, Chicago, Dallas, Newark, Providence, and Portland, Maine. In 2017, Pilotworks raised $13 million from backers such as Techstar Ventures and Anchor Venture Partners, which is Campbell Soup's venture capital fund. Only a year later, Pilotworks abruptly failed and shuttered its location in Brooklyn, putting over 175 businesses and many people's livelihoods at risk. Last week, five years after its closure, I got in touch with two of the Brooklyn-based business owners that were housed at Pilotworks.
6: Chef Rootsy, extraordinaire.
7: Chef Ruzzi of Veggie Grub got connected to Pilotworks through the Food Business Pathways program, which was built for food entrepreneurs living in Section 8 housing. As a top graduate of her class, Chef Ruzzi had her pick of Commercial Kitchen for her vegan catering company. She chose Pilotworks, where she received a six-month complimentary stay.
3: My name is April Wachtel, and I am the founder and CEO of Cheeky Cocktails, formerly known as Swig and Swallow.
7: April Wachtel was looking for a space to house her small business at the time of the Pilotworks construction. Because of its proximity to April and state-of-the-art facility, Pilotworks quickly became her first choice of commercial kitchen. While Pilotworks had abundant resources, it was still risky to join a food tech company and venture capital-funded incubator. As April explained to me, every business needs money to operate, but with little access to debt, small businesses usually have to find money elsewhere. Entrepreneurs can bootstrap, like Sig and Swallow, and invest their own money in the business. Other investors can be friends and family, angel investors, or even venture capitalists.
3: I think that there's a fundamental misalignment of incentives between venture capital and food, beverage, and CPG businesses. It typically takes a long time for people to... Um, build a significant brand or a brand that's able to scale, and venture capital typically wants a return much faster. So it could be three to five years, it could be ten years. But uh, you know, I think that there's just a misalignment in the um, in what the venture capitalists are looking to achieve versus what the entrepreneur is looking to achieve. And so I think that this ties back to Pilot Works because they wanted to grow this thing really huge at the expense of many of the standards that were essential to run a kitchen properly and a community properly. This
7: misalignment brought Pilotworks to a crashing halt in October of 2018 and forced the company to abruptly close its kitchens mid-production.
3: Ultimately, what we ended up seeing is one weekend day, we got some text messages from some of our friends within uh, different companies, also housed in Pilotworks, saying, hey guys, we're getting kicked out you know, we just got kicked out of the kitchen. They said that they're closing. And so this was very abrupt. There was no formal announcement of this prior. And um, then we got an email at 7 p.m., so two hours after we got those initial texts saying, effective two hours ago, Pilotworks is closed, et cetera, et cetera. So that was how we found out about the whole um, shutdown.
7: In just a few hours, kitchens had to be abandoned
6: but Pilot Works had become a home. I mean, I literally was sleeping there sometimes. Staff was sleeping there. It had been my second home. And um, so it has definitely led to me just not being able to, I guess, for the lack of a better, you know, term, to find some place as comfortable as I was at PilotWorks, because the the great thing about Works at the time is that they had everything that. A maker like myself could possibly need, you know, certain equipment, you know, storage, you know, accessibility, um, you know, was 24 hours. It just had everything that I needed. And that is a bit of a challenge to find, even in this time at, you know, your average commercial kitchen. Um, So I haven't been able to really be comfortable anywhere since that time.
7: Despite the sudden closure.
6: Well, I continued on with business. Um, You know, I I pivot very easily. So I did continue on with business. Um, I, you know, I definitely did utilize other commercial kitchens. You know, I started networking with people that owned restaurants and started using their kitchens and churches so it definitely forced me to be able to branch outside of my comfort zone which in a way helped me you know with veggie grub because um so the closing of pilot works definitely enabled me to you know get my networking game on and just you know realize all the other resources out there for me to be able to produce food and you know network with other places and people so yeah
7: after pilot works closed there was an outpouring of help from the national food community People not affiliated with Pilotworks offered facilities and whatever they could to boost these businesses.
3: So I think that Pilotworks was, even though it was not perfect, it was great for us for the time that it was open. We needed that space and we needed that time. And I think moreover, we we needed the community. Like, I think that one of the learnings that I've retained is you know, this is a community effort. This is if you think you can do it by yourself, you're lying to yourself. And having that community around us and still being in the Pfizer building now with a community of of entrepreneurs around us, I think this is one of the reasons that we are still around and we're growing and we're thriving.
7: Funding brought in by venture capital investments certainly can soothe the cost of production that small food businesses are burdened with. April Wachtel and Chef Ruzzi can attest that while unreliable markets and money are part and parcel of entrepreneurship, community remains a life force of food business.
1: In our second story, Kate Dario interviews Charlie Cummings, founder and CEO of Walden Mutual Bank, to learn more about the intersections of banking, environmental sustainability, and local agriculture
8: if you're anything like me you probably spend a lot of time thinking about how to live more sustainably maybe you've altered your diet or only bike to work now maybe you've started composting or stopped buying single-use plastic but there's one aspect of our lives that very few of us realize is contributing to climate change the money sitting in our bank account according to a january op-ed published in the los angeles times your bank account might be helping fuel global warming $62,500 in an account with one of the big four banks, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citi, or JPMorgan Chase, leads to eight tons of carbon emissions annually. That's equivalent to six months of heating, cooling, driving, flying, and cooking for the average American. Charlie Cummings saw this problem and wanted to create a more environmentally friendly bank. He founded Walden Mutual in 2021 and is now the CEO. Walden Mutual, The first mutual bank founded in New Hampshire in over 100 years supports the local food system across New England and New York. Let's hear Charlie describe how he realized he wanted to bridge environmental sustainability and banking.
9: So I have always been interested about the intersections of energy, waste, and agriculture, and how sustainability at those intersections affects climate change and other environmental problems. Uh, And then I started my own company called Walden Local, which is a brand of sustainable local pasture-based meat in the Northeast. And that's grown to be a really nice size business. We have about 200 employees and run a processing plant and a pick-pack facility and uh, do our own last mile delivery too to about 30,000 individual families. And it was in building the supply chain of that business that the opportunity to open a bank became clear because we were so often in the position of lending to our supply chain partners in one form or another.
8: But what is a mutual bank?
9: A mutual is akin to a cooperative in which the bank is ultimately owned by its depositors. And so it's sort of a democratic structure in which there um, are not shareholders of the bank in a traditional sense. And that provides, I think long-term alignment around the impact metrics that we care about, the sort of non-financial mission of the company, if you will. And it's intended to be a permanent structure. And so that was really motivating for me and for our, our initial team here uh, in getting set up as a governance structure that sort of guaranteed that you know, the things that we're writing down is important. That is, like, the change we want to see in this local food ecosystem, that's what this organization is going to be about for the long term.
8: Walden Mutual wants to give depositors the opportunity to be part of the solution, not the problem, with regard to climate change.
9: And so we're trying to offer depositors an alternative to say, hey, actually your dollars are going to be impactful in this really powerful way, and that is developing a much more vibrant and sustainable local food system.
8: They support a sustainable food system by lending to businesses that align with this mission.
9: Yeah, so we specifically lend to everything from production farms all the way down to manufacturers, distributors, uh, retailers, consumer brands, trade brands really the entirety of that ecosystem and then increasingly things that are sort of maybe on the periphery of it but touch natural resources in in some way or another so for example we made a loan to a really amazing business that upcycles various waste streams from farm and fishery businesses um, into dog treats and and pet foods and so we really want to address again, sort of the entirety of the value chain. So not just production farms, but sort of all the, all the participants that support the functioning of the whole.
8: To learn more about Walden Mutual, check out the show notes.
1: We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break.
2: Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: Welcome back to Meat and 3 Our next two stories will survey the impact of venture capital in the food space, but with distinct outlooks. First up, Liv cummins berkowitz introduces us to a journalist who covers the intersection of global finance and the food industry.
4: To put it bluntly, I think most founders, most entrepreneurs in the food industry have really little idea when they take investment what the ramifications are going to be.
5: That was Chloe Servino. She covers food and agriculture for Forbes magazine. I spoke to Chloe about how private investment, hedge funds and venture capital are shaping the future of food. So I come at
4: this from being a Forbes business reporter. I've spent time doing the valuations of hedge funders, private equity folks. There were so many of these investors who had no foundation, no background in food or farming, who started looking at the future of food as this kind of thrilling last, last frontier of investment. I can't tell you how many different investors were slapping me on the back saying, oh, it's like the early days of the internet. but That money comes
5: with a lot of strings attached that a lot of people don't really understand. Chloe broke it down for me. Investors are primarily interested in making a profit. And to do so, they may advocate cutting costs, changing the product entirely, or selling the company to a larger conglomerate. And on top of that, investors are liable to abandon a company at any time when they think it's unprofitable. In this way, entrepreneurs become beholden to the whims and priorities of their investors. When these investors
4: put money into a business, they're expecting that money to come back to them within
5: only a few short years, probably two, three, maybe five years at most. Silicon Valley and American investors are at the epicenter of this new market. But the investment in novel food technologies has become a global phenomenon.
4: It by no means is just in the U.S. There's been really crazy big deals in Europe, especially with, you know, family funds or just different wealthy individuals who are able now to also look to try to to profit off of the future of food and there's also the really big sovereign wealth funds that have been investing in these companies and i think that's important because when you have billionaires when you have the saudi arabian government or the uae government investing in these companies significantly it really changes the market dynamics it makes Those deals accelerate way quicker. And it also makes a lot of other investors who maybe have been in this industry for decades, it it pushes them out. And it makes it so that the bar is so much higher to get into these deals in the first place. And that's also where you see some of these really overzealous valuations with so little bearing, again, on the actual financials and the balance sheets
5: of these companies. The influx of money into the food industry has created a bubble.
4: There was all this really cheap flowing capital going pretty much to almost anyone who who, who could really ask for or who could want it. Companies were often kind of copycats, right? Just trying to mimic something else that recently sold or something else that was in a category like an energy bar or an alternative meat that was growing. And so you have now all these investors throwing billions and billions of dollars, still thinking now they're going to get a return. And it created... A, crazy pressures on a lot of founders in this industry, a lot of these companies have since gone bust because they realize there's really nothing actually in these companies other than the money that these investors have put
5: in. To better understand the tensions between entrepreneurs and their investors, I asked Chloe about the alternative meat industry. Chloe's new book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat, exposes the role of big money in both the conventional and alternative meat industries. Leading alternative meat companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods market themselves as helping to fight climate change. But neither company is certified as a B Corp or Public Benefit Corporation, which are designations for companies committed to working for people and the planet.
4: You know, when Beyond Meat went public in 2019, I should have asked Ethan Brown of Beyond Meat, you know, why didn't you try to become a B Corp if you say you're for the environment? And he pretty much, you know, said that, it would have been impossible. It, it was already so much of a challenge to go public in the first place. That, and there was so much riding on Beyond Meat going public that investors wouldn't have it, and they didn't want to potentially limit any of that initial crazy boom that happened when when the Beyond Meat stock
5: went public. Chloe's concerned. She thinks that investors in the race to profit don't always fund the companies that are really providing innovative and research-backed solutions to the climate crisis.
4: Good Meat, right? Josh Tetrick's lab-grown meat company. It's been selling in Singapore since December 2020 at a loss. This is an unprofitable company. They will be unprofitable for a very long time because the cost structure to build these products and to manufacture these products, particularly at scale, is really just not there. It takes an astronomical amount of cost to grow a single cell into meat. And it's the crucial challenge of this emerging space. So these chicken nuggets have been made from cells in Singapore. They're selling at $23 or so a plate. This is not what a company would be able to sell it for if they didn't have the backing of billionaires or sovereign wealth funds or the Singapore government. But that's not how farmers and local food systems get to compete. There also be incentives to get the right types of capital and resources to the people that really need it. Right now, there's just been a few very specific ideas that have gotten almost all the attention. And so many other actually really community-driven ideals or actually really more ecologically sound or environmentally sound ideas have have barely been able to, to crack into this kind of Resource hoarding that's happening.
5: Finally, I asked Chloe how consumers can critically navigate the food marketplace.
4: I think a lot of folks have been kind of beaten over the head with this idea that voting with your dollars is everything and it's all we have. But really, I push back on that a bit because it's almost a false messiah when. Billionaires, only a very small few amount of corporations have the ability to control what we have access to in the first place. And so that being said, I try to advocate for folks to, when they are using that dollar, to be really cognizant of actually the financial structures that are behind the foods that they're buying. Because at the end of the day, I don't think the
5: billionaires are going to be saving us. Novel technologies like alternative meat may play a role in the transformation of the global food system. But we also must invest in regional food sheds, community-supported agriculture, and regenerative farming. In raw deal hitting corruption, corporate greed, and the fight for the future of meat, Chloe asks, is it possible to increase profits while decreasing environmental impact? This is a question we all must sit with as we reimagine the future of food in the midst of the climate crisis.
1: Now let's take a look at alternative meat from the other side of the fence. For our next story, we head to Silicon Valley, the land of innovative ideas, futuristic startups, and tons of money from venture capitalists to fund them. Rana Rudy dives into the controversy around alternative meat with guest Jackson Morrow. His background in banking, with a focus on climate tech and sustainability, gives him unique insight into a space that seems to be bursting with new ideas.
10: It might sound counterintuitive that Jackson developed a passion for alternative meat through banking, but it's true. He spent the past five years working side by side with the founders and CFOs at many of these alternative meat companies. Through learning from them, Jackson reached a point where eating animal products just didn't make sense to him anymore.
11: When you factor in all the inefficiencies of raising an animal and feeding that animal and, and um, all the land it takes to, to, to to maintain that animal, we can effectively just cut out the, the middleman in that equation, which is the animal, and, and just consume plant-based products.
10: As Chloe Sorvino just shared in our last story, alternative meat has been coined the last frontier of investment. Jackson has been following the development of this new frontier closely and says the amount of capital pouring in is incredible.
11: We're sort of going beyond the, the, the the initial plant-based phase of, of this movement, which was kind of beyond and impossible foods and moving more toward kind of the second generation or third generation of cultivated proteins, fermented proteins, um, things that, uh, you know, are really exciting and, and different. Um, and I think that's the kind of stuff that gets investors excited when you have the, the, a really large addressable market. Um, and product market fit, that combination um, you know, can, can generate a really big return.
10: While Jackson acknowledged that investors are inherently looking for their greatest return on investment, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Investing in these alternative meat companies helps to grow the industry as a whole, gaining market share and in turn, loosening the grip of the meat industry.
11: I think just getting as much market share and getting the word out as quickly as possible, and scaling up as quickly as possible is the focus. And, and, you know, getting complete transparency on supply chain and, um, you know, moving maybe more toward organic ingredients or whatever it is to, to really make these completely sustainable, I think is good over the long term. But in the near term, we just need more people eating these products, consuming them, um, replacing existing, uh, livestock agriculture. I think that's that's the priority and then I think over the long term can can kind of figure out how to optimize that even further.
10: Jackson believes that as the industry grows, companies will be able to improve the sustainability of their products.
11: I think, you know, you have to compare it to the existing processes and are you really comfortable with with what the meat industry is doing today? You know, it, it that looks a whole lot worse in my opinion than than some of the you know newer processes that are coming out for for fermented
10: or cultivated proteins Jackson is optimistic for the future he encourages consumers to do their research on both the existing meat industry and the developing alternative meat industry
11: you know these companies are it's still early and they're figuring it out um, but I think there's a lot of reason to be excited about the progress that's been made in in a pretty short period of time. The more we can kind of support this fledgling industry and not attack it um, from every angle, I think we're all going to be better off.
10: With that in mind, keep an eye out in your local grocery store for more and more of these innovative meats taking over the aisles.
1: That's our show. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Charlotte Rhodes, Kate Dario, Liv Cummins-Berkowitz, and Rana Rudy. Meet and Three is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Katie Mosman-Watler, and me, Matt Patterson. Our audio engineer for this episode is H. Conley. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch whether you have a story idea or just like to say hey. Write us at ideas at meatin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.